Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast is a W2M Network original production. Visit W2Mnet.com for all of our other great podcasts, plus news, reviews, articles, and opinions from the worlds of wrestling, video games, football, and entertainment. And welcome once again, folks, to another edition of Wrestling Unwrapped here on the W2N Network. I'm your host, as always, Mr. Patrick Tessa, and also joining me, as he always does, Mr. Harry Broadhurst. How are you, Harry? I don't know about that mister thing, but I'm still here. Just trying to be nice. Yeah, that that's not really our style though. Uh, go to hell then. Fight me. Speaking of hell, it's time to talk <laughs> about the highway to hell. Hey, I see what you did there. Darn right. <laughs> As yes, we will be finishing up August. 1998, the big three pay-per-views. We first did Heat Wave, then we did WCW Road Wild, which most likely you'll have listened to by now, hopefully. And tonight, we will be covering possibly one of the best pay-per-views of the entire Attitude Era, and in some regards, one of the most important, kind of a turning point, I think, in SummerSlam 1998, August the 30th, 1998, specifically from the world's most famous arena, the mecca of sports, Madison Square Garden in New York City. Which, well, they're not, frankly, they're, they're not only at the Garden, though. They're also in the theater for one of the matches, too. That is true, and in both cases, total sellout. I believe 21,000 in the arena, and I believe an extra 3,000 in the theater. Yeah, it, it looked about three. It looked about three grand deep. There were a lot of people in that small space. Yes, yes, there were, and basically they got to watch the pay per view on on a TV for most of it, aside from one match. We'll get to that match in a little bit. See, I'm kind of curious as to how. I'm kind of curious as to how that worked. Like, were they charged the same admission price as, like, a nosebleed for the actual garden itself? Was there, like, a special admission price to sit in the theater for the show? I'm curious as to how that would work. I would be... Maybe they got a... uh, Maybe they got a kind of a closed circuit pricing, plus five bucks for the match. Yeah, maybe. Like, how they used to do for movie theaters and stuff, where you'd pay, like, 15 bucks instead of paying, like, the 25 or $30 price tag for the pay-per-view itself. Yeah, guess we'll find out. I could tell by a f- sign that a fan had in the crowd that the cost for this pay-per-view was twenty nine ninety five. Though, <laughs> however, but it is available before, to watch. For, it is available to watch for only nine ninety nine on the WWE Network. Uh, excuse me, the award winning WWE Network. Uh, they're not paying us to say that. They're just the WWE Network to me. <laughs> Fair point. How you know, we're of networks. Yes. We probably should mention that we 
actually are a presentation of the W2M Network, which you can find all of our old episodes, including ECW Gateway 98 and WCW World Wild 98, all on W2Mnet.com. Not only that, but you can also find the Woo2M review, the reaction really, of SummerSlam 2017. Gary, Paul, Harry, and myself brought down the 13 match card of SummerSlam 2017. Dude, if you got up and moved within like the last minute or something, move back to where you were because your reception is awful right now. I can barely hear you. I barely moved. Okay, see, now you're clear again. I think your phone might be active cool. again. Great. I'll call Verizon eventually. Anyway, yes. you can hear all of that at W2Nnet.com. Not only that, you can also hear us on 411mania.com and on LastWordOnSports.com. And you can also now hear us on Vlog Talk Radio. We are going back home. To where we all started, we are back on blogtalkradio.com. Coming as home, well. coming home. Tell the world that we're coming home. I have like no your singing is indeed the pain of yesterday. You know what the thing is? Is I have like no voice right now, so I can't hit any note, let alone any high note. So frankly, me trying to sing right now is a horrendous idea. All right, me trying to sing at any time is probably a horrendous idea on this show, but still. You beat me to it. Um, anyway. But what if I spend my days working hard on the grind? Working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep moving too slow. How about that? All right. I'm good. Uh... I'm good. <laughs> well, you know. All right, that's 30. We're good. He's on the show later on. Can we get to this? Yeah, he actually does make an appearance. Uh, you can clear his day, hear his voice in one of the segments that doesn't actually appear on the pay-per-view, but it's instead a, was it still Coliseum home video at this point? No, I think by this point it was WWF home video. Well, they include the backstage segment after one of the matches, and you can clear his day, hear his voice calling for The Undertaker. We'll talk about that once we get to that, inter- that particular interview. Shall we get to the results for this particular show, however? I think we shall. So, as always, here's Harry with the results from the 10th annual SummerSlam, The Highway to Hell. As Patrick mentioned, we are live from the world's most famous arena, and frankly, a place where I miss having pay-per-views from. It just seemed like anything, anytime a pay-per-view was in the garden, it meant more than when it does at, say, I don't know, Rochester. I believe this is our third time reviewing a show from there. Um, I believe you are correct, because I know we did WrestleMania 1 and WrestleMania 20, right? Yes. Yeah. Wow, that has to be the lead for most times visiting an arena. I mean, maybe all state and Chicago might be tied or close to it, but it's got to be up there. All right, let's get, it. let's get to it. Your Sunday Night Heat results, though not included on the WWE Network, are as follows. The team of Too Much, Brian Lawler, and Scott Taylor. Well, uh-huh. Yeah, this is before they became Too Cool and actually became uh-huh. someone. Hey, they became somewhat relevant as Too Cool, at least. 
Defeat because of the, the man with the giant ass. Defeat the Legion of Doom. When Brian Lawler pins Animal at 2 minutes and 15 seconds. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Oh, you didn't hear me hitting my head? No, I did not. Did you face face palm that? That's hilarious. No, I was actually hitting myself in the head. Ah, well. But would you sell a pile driver? Because we know that Hawk would not. All right, moving on. Gangrel pinned gold dust with an impaler DDT at 2 minutes and 32 seconds. And the Harris boys defeat Bradshaw and Vader when Dawn pins Vader after Bradshaw walks out on him at 2.56 in what I do believe is Vader's last appearance with the WWF. Well, during this run, anyway. Yeah. I believe Vader will go back to Japan after this show. And be a All big, right. fat piece of... You know what? Never mind. <laughs> All right. Points. Well played, sir. Well played. Pay-per-view results. It is, as Patrick mentioned, SummerSlam 1998. We are live in Madison Square Garden, Manhattan slash New York City, New York, August 30th, 1998. And off we go. The European champion D'Lo Brown, hailing from Helsinki, Finland, because of course he is, Defeats Val Venus by disqualification at 15 minutes and 23 seconds. Yes, you heard that time right. Think about that as we're mentioning the opening match of this show and thinking back to last week's show. Ming. (laughs) And the Barbarian. Anyway. Fine, don't bless me. See if I care. The oddities of... Giant Silva, Kurgan, and Golga, though I have him listed as Earthquake on my DVD results list because John Tenta, same difference, defeat Kai and Tai in a handicap match as it is all four members of Kai and Tai. Dick Togo, Sho Funaki. <laughs> Funaki! No, not him. That's not the one Men- I'm chuckling at. Men's Teo. And Taka Mishinoku at 10 minutes and 11 seconds when Kurgan pins everybody. Yes, you heard that right. Um, the oddities are accompanied to ringside by Luna and the Insane Clown Posse, though you wouldn't know it if you watched the pay-per-view. On the network. Yes. If you watched the actual pay-per-view or the old 24-7 version, you would know it because they include the performance on the old 24-7 edition. Not so much. Oh, yet. we're, 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 we're going to talk about the network version at some point tonight. Trust me. <laughs> I think I know where this is going. All right, moving on. X-Pac pins Jeff Jarrett. That's J-E-double-F, haha, J-E. Well, I... No, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's not. J-A-double-R-S. E double T. And he's got some advice for you. Holds up guitar when the camera's not on him like a dumbass. With a guitar shot, said guitar, as a matter of fact, at 11 minutes and 11 seconds. Sable and her mystery tag team partner, 
you think you know him. Edge making his pay-per-view debut, I do believe here. Or if you ask Jerry Waller, The Edge, because they haven't been sued by you 2 yet. Defeat the team of Jacqueline and Mark Marrow when Sable pins Marrow after a wheelbarrow-assisted splash at 8 minutes and 26 seconds. Inside of the Lions' den at the theater at Madison Square Garden, Ken Shamrock submits Owen Hart with an ankle walk at 9.16. Billy Gunn and the Road Dog defeat Mankind. Well, frankly, they've defeated Mankind for years by getting that gimmick over. With a spiked pile driver on the one tag team title that happened to be at ringside for this contest, Mankind's tag team partner Kane was nowhere to be found until after the match. Talk about that when we get there. At 5 minutes and 17 seconds. Would you like to announce this one? The time is 26.05 because I know this is one of your favorites of all time. (laughs) Would it be the semi-main event? It would. You know what I'm talking about. Just announce the damn match so we can move on. Real quick, 26.05? 26.05. All right. Triple H defeats The Rock to win the Intercontinental Championship in a ladder match at 26 minutes and 5 seconds by reaching up and grabbing the ladder after The Rock had been shotted by China, thus knocking him out of the match. Yeah, China reached up and grabbed something herself to allow Triple H to win this match. I don't know that she... Pulled, I think she pushed. It was more of an uppercut, or as Dave Prezak used to say, an upper nut. Anywho, that match is also available on the Ladder Match DVD if you're interested in such things. Speaking of matches that also appear on WWE compilation DVD sets, one that I would eventually like to do, the Greatest Stars of the 90s DVD set, sees the main event of the Highway to Hell SummerSlam. It is the Highway to Hell match itself, where WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin defeats The Undertaker with a stunner at 20 minutes and 51 seconds. You could make the argument there were two stunners in this match. Yeah, well, the first one... One from both guys. Yeah, well, the... The one the one stunner was botched to hell and back, too. There was actually a one originally earlier in the match, too, over by the corner. But I think Taker fell too quickly, and it ended up looking more like a uh, like a bear hug counter. Or not a bear hug counter, a sleeper counter, where you fall to your back while the guy has you in a sleeper. Okay, then three stunners. Thanks for ruining my joke. Well, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> and Thank those you, are your those are your results for SummerSlam 1998. Can I just point out how hilarious it is that Too Much beat the Legion of Doom in two minutes and 15 seconds? Oh. That makes me laugh so much. So much. And Draws wasn't yet there because Draws was involved in the uh, haircut. Yes. Well, he may have been involved in that angle as well. I, it, it's been a long time since I've watched the copy of this show that I have, which included sending my heat with it, and why I had those results handy. Oh, okay. Well, we're not going to talk about something that heat. Right? Well, we are going to talk about the pay-per-view itself. 
Yes, which had a lot of heat. Why? Because it's the middle of summer. Well, there are a couple other reasons, too, but we'll get to those while we discuss the matches. <laughs> True. So it is the highway to hell, and quite frankly, I can't think of a better place, thanks to its traffic, than New York City to host a pay-per-view like this. It's essentially a double main event. You might even make the argument it's one of the best pay-per-views of the Attitude Era. This is SummerSlam 1998. And kicking things off is the European Championship match. The champion D'Lo Brown, hang on, I'll mention it, facing off against the challenger Val Venus. D'Lo Brown at this point had somehow managed to move all the way from Lisbon, I believe, to Helsinki, Finland in a matter of a week. Uh, Not just a week, in a matter of three days, because he was from Lisbon, Portugal on SmackDown. Okay, that was in I could have sworn he mentioned as he said that it was on SmackDown. You might be right there. Actually, no, SmackDown didn't debut until '99. It would have had to have been Raw. What did it? Or it was the pilot episode of SmackDown because they aired one. No, I think that was in. I think that was in like April of '99. So yeah, it would have had to have been Raw. My bad. Ha. Okay, so six days. He moved from Portugal to Finland in six days. Excuse me. All of a sudden, my allergies hate me. And not only that, D.O. Brown, huh? What's he get for laughing at me? No, no. There's something else that came back to bite me in the you-know-what. Anyway... And at this point, D'Lo Brown is also wearing his uh, illegal chest protector because he's not injured at all. I don't care what anybody says. And he's only using it to get an advantage. Hey, if it works, it works. I still love the fact that uh, okay, getting into the match, this was actually really good. I thought this was actually a great match. And I thought it actually got the crowd into it, and then the crowd really got pissed off at the end. Um, this had to have been before the referee strike, right? Yes, this is in the build-up to the referee strike because I believe it was the triple threat at the following pay-per-view, which would have been breakdown, if I'm not mistaken, if I have my timeline correct, that Earl Hebner crosses the picket line to work the main event. Yes, that would be breakdown because that was the triple threat where you couldn't pin one of your opponents. Yeah, Taker, Kane, and Austin in the triple threat where Taker and Kane both pinned Austin. Yep, because they could only pin Austin. Anyway... Um, I mean, I thought Valen, I've always found D'Lo Brown to be underrated. Like, seriously. I thought he was awesome. I loved him even when I was a kid. Um, yes, it's a goofy gimmick to be from a different city every, you know, week or every episode of any show. Granted, Al Snow would take it to a whole different level, but be that as it may, 
Um, I thought these two actually put on one hell of a match. Um, oh, no, I completely agree with you on this one. What I believe for this match here is the fact that these are two guys who, while being at the mid, in the mid-card at the time, decided that they were going to go out there and take the time that they were allotted, the third longest time on the show, I might add, and try their best to steal the show. The only thing that I take issue with is the finish. And understandably so, especially with the fact that, all right, so it's not illegal when D'Lo wears the chest protector. It's considered part of his outfit. It's never been considered illegal to wear a part of an opponent's outfit. Why all of a sudden was it illegal for Val Venus to put on the chest protector? Um, because reasons. I guess it was WWF. No, 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 no! Wait, 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 wait! More specifically, because Vince Russo. <laughs> yeah. All right. I mean, because WWF is funnier, because Vince Russo is probably more accurate. Um, I think because it was considered a part of D'Lo's ring gear at this point. Although, if you recall, yeah, his outfit. Uh, if you recall, the chest protector, due to the fact that it was supposedly reinforced, is why the referee tried to get involved to prevent Val from using it. And that's what leads to the part of the match that I strongly dislike, and the fact that Val is up on the top rope. It looks like the referee is trying to grab his foot to get his attention, and he ends up crotching Val Venus. A referee should never be so blatantly involved in the finish if the referee is just a traditional referee. We just did... Now, sorry to spoil the illusion of kayfabe here for everybody, but we just did a road wild 1998 right before this due to our schedules in August ending up being ridiculous. And we had an example of referee involvement on that show as well. But that that show, the referee involvement in the match made a lot more sense because there was a recurring beef between Dean Malenko and Chris Jericho going into that contest when Malenko was the referee for the Cruiserweight title match. In this particular instance, it was just a standard WWF referee putting his hands on a WWF competitor. When when Val Venus returns the favor a little bit later on in the match, Val finds himself on the receiving end of a disqualification. Yeah, the whole thing is kind of a kind of a cluster. I think would be a nice way of putting it. Um, so basically, this was to forward. It, it's sad that you had such an awesome match, and it was more or less meant to forward a really crappy storyline. Yeah, the whole referee strike angle, which I thought was in retarded. I don't want to use that word. People get real butthurt about that word. It was dumb. The storyline with the referees was dumb, and it led to very. Hardy whistling. Yes? I said very. Oh, I thought you said Harry. My mistake. Um, it led to Harvey Whippleman and I want to say Tom Pritchard as referees and maybe Steve Lombardi, if I recall correctly. I know the first two are correct. You might be right on the third as well. I mean, longtime fans would know him better as the Brooklyn Brawler, but I think when he refereed, he was Steve Lombardi. I, I might be wrong about that, but I seem to remember seeing Lombardi at Breakdown 98 when I watched it. So You very well we've never. We, we've never covered that show. It's been a long time since I've watched that show. My memory may be a little bit skewed, but I think I recall seeing Steve Lombardi as a referee. Actually, he 
if I have my timeline right, he may have refereed the triple threat cage match. Ken Shamrock, Mick Foley, and um, The Rock. The Rock. Yeah. Maybe. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and put a little bow on this match because there's still a lot of stuff to get to. It's a pretty loaded card, even though there are only eight matches. But yeah, really want to give credit to both of the guys for the work ethic involved in this contest, and then you can kind of detract some of that credit from the committee for coming up with such a craptastic ending to it. Yeah, I mean, Val and D'Lo Brown put their working shoes on for this match. It sucks that it was ruined by such a crappy ending. I would be curious to go back and look over all the pay-per-view openers in 1998. I mean, not necessarily review them, just look them over. The only one that I could think that would possibly on the level of this one would be the following month at Breakdown, if I'm not mistaken. That's the Edge and Jeff Jarrett Intercontinental title rematch. Which sounds pretty darn good. Because Edge would end up winning the Intercontinental title at a house show. Or maybe it was Edge and Owen at Breakdown. It might have been Edge and Jarrett edging Jared a little bit later on in the year. Either way. Either way. It would be Edge's first pay-per-view singles match, and it would be for the Intercontinental title, if I'm not mistaken. And, yeah, either Edge or Jeff, at this time, they were both phenomenal workers. Obviously, Jared, as he advanced more and more into his career, became less and less motivated inside of the ring and more and more motivated by what happened outside of it. Money, 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 money. Broke 6,000 guitars. Never drew a dime. Speaking of never drew a dime, our next contest. I felt so bad for Kai and Ty here. I felt bad for Earthquake. (laughs) Well, that too. Yeah, how how sad is it that when you look back at Earthquake, John Tenta's wrestling legacy in the WWF, rather than being known for the, the run with, the, with Typhoon as the natural disasters in their tag team run, rather than being known for the main event, semi-main event technically, program that he had with Hulk Hogan back in 1990, because I just watched that SummerSlam a while ago, his last run in the WWF was in the freaking oddities as Golga the South Park-loving fan. Because, ladies and gentlemen, yes, that was him. Because he gave WCW a chance. He tried to go back to the WWF. Vince McMahon wanted him back, but thought that his character wouldn't fit in the Edger Attitude Era. So he put a giant-ass South Park shirt on him, put him in sweatpants, and put a giant mask over him. And I'm, I know what kind of mask it was. I'm not mentioning that part. Our next contest is a four-on-three handicap match, although you could make the argument five-on-four, as Kai and Tai, Men's Tail, Shofunaki, Dick to go and Takamichi Noku, accompanied by Yamaguchi-san, yes, he gets involved, against the oddities of Giant Silva, Golga, Kurgan, accompanied to the ring by Luna Vachon and the members of ICP, Insane Clown Posse. If you're watching on the network, you never saw them. It cut hard. Well, okay. You kind of saw, saw them for a few seconds as Kai and Tai were making their entrance. Yeah. Going into this match, 
so far, the intro video has been cut. Like the immediate introduction to the pay-per-view was cut, and ICP's intro was cut. Ugh. Not that I'm an ICP fan. I'm actually really not, but... Ugh. Anyway. Um, no, um, speaking why of somebody was this else, the second match? Why was this the second match? Uh, because comedy? Why was this the second match? Hey, at least they had their working shoes on when they started the show. Thank God. Honestly, I think what happened was is they had their working shoes on when they started the show. They had the uh, <clears throat> excuse me. They had the opportunity to have two guys go out there and kill it inside of the ring, which Val and D'Lo did. This particular match here was kind of that change of pace, and honestly, you could probably consider this to be something of a popcorn match for the first half of the show. Whereas if you weren't interested in seeing this kind of thing, such as yourself and I would not have been, this would be your opportunity to go to the concession stands, get a drink, go use the restroom. The main selling point for this, the main selling point for this contest is removed from the WWE Network version. And let's be honest. The main selling point for this contest is the live performance of the audio theme song by the Insane Clown Posse. I find myself in the same boat as you do. I do not care for ICP. I have never been a fan. There have been a couple of songs here and there that I'll listen to, but it's not something I'm going to actively seek out on my playlists or anything. At the same time, when you say that the WWE Network has everything history and intact, when you're saying it's the uncensored, unfiltered versions of these shows, now that they have the rights back to say the WWF name in these older shows here, you kind of can't say that and then cut out entrance songs such as the ICP theme song performance for the oddities here. Or, you know, the theme for the damn pay-per-view. ACDC's Highway to Hell? Yep. Mm-hmm. Because there is more very harsh editing later. Well, let's not forget that they completely cut out the Oddities uh, celebration as well for the exact same reason as they cut out the entrances. Yep. Because it's the ICP performing the song once again on the way out of the arena, too. I'll give you a clue on one thing. Do you want to know the amazing factoid, though? Is as bad as the editing is on this? Not my trash. Official runtime for the actual version of the show that I have is just a shade under two hours and 48 minutes. The WWE Network version of the show goes about 2.44, I think. Oh, I think 2.42. Yeah, somewhere in that range. So it's, it's, it's yeah. a good five or six minutes of chopping here between the two ICP performances, the main entrance video, as Patrick mentioned. Well, the main entrance video, it's literally only 10 seconds. But I think there's another edit, too. But we'll get to that when we get to that later. Anyway, um, this is a complete comedy match, as Harry mentioned, and as Bruce Pritchard mentioned, this was the definition of a popcorn match. Although, why would you still have a popcorn match an hour and tw- well, 20 minutes into your live show? Why? Um, because they wanted people to get it out of the way. 
the next maybe the, the two next two contests really because both of the next two contests were super important to the WWF. It was the hair versus hair match, and then it was the in ring debut on pay per view for Edge. I don't know that I would call the wait. Are you calling those two popcorn matches? No, I'm saying that this was oh. your popcorn match because they okay. wanted people there and interactive for the hair versus hair match as well as the ring debut for Edge. That's why this match is so early on the show. Honestly, it would make more sense to put this match on before the Ken Shamrock and Owen Hart match, so that way people in the arena would have the opportunity to go to the popcorn stands during this match so they wouldn't miss Shamrock versus Owen. Yeah. Well, they probably would, considering the way that concession stands work. Well, depending on which concession stand you happen to find. I think some arenas it's worse than others, depending on how many they have open at any given time. Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, um, yeah, the oddities win when Golga literally pins everybody. Um, Next. No, Golga. Really? Golga. I have Kurgan listed on my results. I may have to... Well, you're wrong. Golga. I may have, may have to check that and change that. I mean, it would make more sense for the 400-pounder to pin all four numbers of Kai and Kai than Kurgan, who was like 270-something. Although it was funny that I believe at one point Kurgan squared off with Men's Tail, I believe. I believe. Or Funaki. It was one of the two. Kurgan got onto his knees to square up with whoever his opponent was and was just as tall as his opponent was on his knees. I want to say it was Funaki because I remember that bit, and I remember actually chuckling at that. Yeah. (laughs) That got a chuckle from me as well. But other than that, moving on. Our next contest... Another stipulation match, actually. It is hair versus hair. It is Jeff Jarrett putting his long blonde locks on the line. Also, Jeff Jarrett being accompanied to the ring by Southern Justice, a.k.a. the Godwins. A.k.a. Sex Flessinger and Shanghai Pierce, a.k.a. Mark Canterbury and Dennis Knight, a.k.a. about a billion other things. Taking on, <laughs> taking on X-Pac, who has Howard Finkel, a.k.a. The Fink, a.k.a. Finkus Maximus. Oh, stop now. Fresh, freshly shorn on Sunday Night Heat, I might add. It looked like they didn't finish. On Sunday Night Heat, no. But then he won that stage, and that's why Finkel isn't on no. I still don't think they were finished when he came out for this match. Do you think that might have been on purpose, though? Like, Xbox sending a message to Jared that that's what you're about to look like? Oh, no doubt, but, you know. Poor, um, poor, poor, poor thing. At least he gets his revenge somewhat. He does. But good for him. Yes. And once again, because this is a Jeff Jarrett that still gives a damn against an X-Pac who, even when he doesn't give a damn, is still very good, you get a pretty darn good match. Oh, no. No arguments here at all. Uh, I would argue that just behind 
D'Lo and Val Venus in terms of the actual overall match quality, but much more important than D'Lo and Val when it comes to the importance with regards to the storyline going into it here. Uh, definitely and a also... Much, a much more sorry. heated... Uh, no, just... I'm, I'm going to go ahead and finish here. Uh, okay. A much more heated match because the crowd interactions were much more with X-Pac and Jarrett than they were with Val and D'Lo. Yeah. And also a plus one didn't have a stupid finish. I mean, the finish was kind of dumb, but it wasn't. It made sense storyline wise, at least. Oh Other yeah, stuff, I mean, we can kind of discuss that here, and then we'll talk about the finishes and the post match as well here. Um, Southern Justice, who gets thrown out of ringside at the start of the match by WWF Commissioner Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter or JJ Dillon? Who would you rather? Never mind. Who would you rather, Commissioner? Um, strictly to make matches and not to get physical. Dylan is a better talker. That's my point. If you're yeah. if you're looking strictly for a matchmaker, JJ. If you're looking well, actually, no. You know what, JJ? JJ. Period. Because Slaughter most of the time still couldn't do his job, just like he couldn't keep Southern Justice away from ringside here. He couldn't prevent China from interfering at WrestleMania 14. So you know what, JJ Dillon. All right. Anyways, so to start the match, am I wrong? No, you're not. That's why I'm moving on with the context yeah. of this review because I don't want to be here for two and a half hours discussing this show. This is. Not in this episode of SCWW. We don't run three hours. Anyway. Um, I lost my turn. Okay, so Sergeant Slaughter sends Southern Justice, a.k.a. the God, we already did the spiel, back to, to the back at the start of the match. For some odd reason, though, X-Pac is allowed to keep his second. In fairness, it's Fink. What's Fink going to do? Towards exactly. the end of the match... Towards the end of the match, Southern Justice makes their way back down to ringside, and I believe it is Canterbury that ends up popping up on the ring apron and tries to toss Jeff Jarrett his guitar. That doesn't go so well because um, X-Pac hits Canterbury with a forearm, causing Canterbury to drop the guitar. Midian, Dennis Knight, has the referee distracted, and X-Pac proceeds to obliterate Jeff Jarrett's skull with the aforementioned guitar a three-count later, and let the head shaving commence. Kind of. Well, there's a whole group of people involved in the head shaving, but they make sense as to who the people involved oh. in the head shaving are. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm absolutely not denying that part. I'm saying let the head shaving commence. Kind of. Kind oh, of being yeah. emphasized on the head shaving part. Well, yeah, due to the fact that the Clippers only work for about three minutes. Did I just say three? Never mind. No, it didn't even work for that long. No, it, it really didn't. It got to didn't. the point that they actually had to bring out a pair of scissors. As X-Pac and Fink would be joined in the ring by the... I legitimately almost said the Bushwhackers instead of the Headbangers. The Headbangers. Andros? Yes, Darren Dross does. Yes. So, yeah, what the hell? Um, apparently, styles of music that you know Jeff Jarrett hates. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I mean, technically speaking, you wouldn't be wrong there. At least he didn't uh, sing rap as crap. Moving on, though. So Jeff Jarrett would end up getting his head shaved, and he would pretty much 
From there, use a short hair or mostly short hair look for the entire rest of his career all the way up to now. Yeah, it's hard to believe some 20 years later and Jeff Jarrett's still wrestling on occasion. Yeah, just like... Uh, 6, all right. thousand kill, guitars. Kill, kill, kill. Just like last night. 6,000 guitars. Never drew a dime. I was going to say, we're missing our spots here. Come on, Patrick, work with me. Anyway. <laughs> So, Fink gets his revenge. Our next contest is another stipulation match. They really love their stipulations in the Attitude Era, man. I'm telling you. I swear to God, bro. Anyway. It's a mixed tag team match. So, it is men against men, women against the women. It is marvelous Mark Merrill. What? Which I thought was dumb when you consider the finish. Bingo! So they should have called it an intergender tag team match because that makes all the difference. Sure. Anyway. Because technically calling it a mixed tag team match means the winning pinfall was an illegal pinfall. Hell, it probably was anyway. It's Marvelous Mark Merrow teaming with Jacqueline to take on Sable... And, well, not that you heard her announce it, her tag team partner, Edge. My guess Who also made an appearance earlier in the night, by the way, in the crowd. I wonder if he stayed in that spot the entire time. Okay, two things to touch on here. One, I'm willing to bet she said the Edge and they had to edit it out because of the YouTube thing. You couldn't hear her. Two... I believe it was during the D'Lo and Val Venus match that Edge was shown in the crowd. Three, I don't think he stayed in the crowd throughout the duration. Damn. It's not like he was Roddy Piper in a trench coat being hidden in the crowd during WrestleMania 19. Oh, God. Why'd you bring that up? Anyway. Anyway. Um, no, my point being is you didn't hear her announce it because I'm pretty sure the mic crapped out. Maybe so, you just got tired of Sable shrieking, which like most of the male population did throughout the course of 1998. Eh, at certain times you can deal with her shrieking. Don't, anyway. Don't get me wrong. Super attractive, but ugh, that voice. <laughs> Her or China, who's worse? Um, China's voice actually sounded more subtle to me. That makes mm. sense. Anyway, moving on into this match. Um, there's really not much to talk about with this match. Marrow and Jacqueline look like idiots. The entire match. Which I'm guessing was kind of the intent due to the fact that, well... I believe it was around this time that they were starting to have heat with everybody backstage, and by they, I mean pronouns, pal. By they, I mean Murrow and Sable. So, 
there were only a, a certain group of people that they would really work with at this point, and Jacqueline seemed to be the most common denominator in all of their matches because she was the one that they aligned Murrow with on screen while Stable was getting the massive babyface rocket shoved up her ass. Metaphorically, not literally. She had something else shoved. Okay, never mind. <clears throat> Let's. Uh, was it, okay, that was funny, not stable, and that's neither here nor there. Third difference. Anyway. Oh. Um, if, if Brock Lesnar, by some odd chance, ever happens to listen to this show, the views and opinions of Patrick Ketza are solely his. And find him on Twitter at Pat Ketza. Or you can check my email. It's s.garmer at gmail.com. <laughs> We're hitting all the hits tonight, boy. <laughs> as far as the, but getting back to the match, let's be honest. They made, especially Mero and somewhat Jacqueline, because, you know, she missed some of those, you know, being held up, run into your opponent and hit them, and they duck out of the way, and you deck your partner. She caught that a couple times. Meryl just looked like a flat-out idiot. The entire match. To um, be fair, to be fair, Meryl's looked like an idiot against Sable for the vast majority of his matches against Sable because the WWF saw nothing in Meryl. They saw everything in Sable. And I'm going to actually drop the podcast name here. We've quasi-referenced them a couple of times here. Uh, something to wrestle with? You, with Bruce Pritchard, you will definitely understand yeah. why, because Vince Russo had something of an obsession with Sable and insisted on trying to make her a mainstream star. Apparently it was both Vince's. But more so Russo, since he was the one that was technically handling creative at the time. Obviously everything had to go through Vince McMahon, but it was Vince Russo that was in charge of the creative direction of the company at the time. Mm. Um... And I'm actually going to name drop something else, being What Culture Pro Wrestling, or not, well, not that, just the What Culture channel on YouTube. And according to them, Edge was actually the one who came up with the finish to this match. In that it would be the wheelbarrow-assisted splash, Edge wheelbarrowing Sable onto Marrow for the victory, so Sable pins Marrow, even though it's guys against guys and women against, you know what, forget it. Once again, Wall Russo. Um, Edge was the one who apparently Erica. pushed that because he wanted to, he, he knew that everything was going to go to Sable, so he wanted to try and get something in, and quite frankly, Edge didn't have a pretty good showing in this match. You know, I don't Can think I there's any denying that. Um, so um, that worked out. Um, can I just point out the irony of Edge wanting to get something in and then putting Sable in a wilt? Never mind. S.armor at gmail.com. Right. <laughs> Edge and Sable win. Speaking of matches I don't want to talk about, although it's not a terrible match. You know what? Our next you know, contest. Just real quick here, to, to, we'll put a nice little tidy bow on that next tag match. You know, Sable actually wasn't terrible in the ring. It's just she had no motivation to be in the ring. But when she was in there, she actually did put in the effort to do so. I mean, the top rope runner that she hits tomorrow looks really good. 
while at the same time, the basic punches that are her very first offense in the entire match on Jacqueline are terrible. Some people can't throw strikes. Rob Van Dam can't punch either. That's why he throws forearms. Sable made Jenna Maraska look good. I don't know if anyone could make Jenna Maraska look good, but that's neither here nor there. Back to the match itself. When she was properly motivated, it was easy to understand why Sable had the following that she had. The problem is is she let that following go to her head and immediately thought of herself as too big for the business because you end up with the end of her run the way that it is. Yes, with lawyers. And then she went back. She would be gone less than a year later, and then, as Patrick just mentioned, would return around WrestleMania 19 in 2003. I think it was a couple of weeks. I think it was a couple of nights after WrestleMania, if I'm not mistaken. I want to say it was the first SmackDown after WrestleMania 19 that she returned at. I mean, she would have been in the WWE for over a year. Or about a year, because I know she did the tag match at WrestleMania 20. Yeah, anyway. Which, right, by the way, WrestleMania 20, you can find in the Woo archives. Yes, over on W2Mnet.com. Show. <laughs> Our next contest is not in Madison Square Garden. It is in the theater at Madison Square Garden. It is the reason that 3,000 people packed into the theater at Madison Square Garden. <clears throat> sure. It is Ken Shamrock with, again, uh, Ken Shamrock facing Owen Hart, who has Dan the Beast Severed. They seriously kept calling him Dan the Beast Severin. It's Severn in his corner, in a Lion's Den match. What is a Lion's Den match? Mm, long and short, it's a cheap rip-off of the UFC. Yeah, it looks kind of sort of like an octagon, but not quite. I believe it was a dodecahedron. Uh, who's a what now? 12 sides. May have actually had more. Sure, if you say so, let's go with that. Mostly because it An octagon like has eight sides. I'm aware of what has twelve. I'm aware of what an octagon is. Thank you. I've had more than my fair share of talks about octagons over the last week. So, um, yeah, this was <laughs> this. <laughs> It was a WWF UFC match. I, that's the long and short of it. That's what it was. Well, it, was like it, was a, it was an MMA fight mixed with some aspects of a steel cage, aside from the fact that you were apparently able to spring off of this cage. Which, might I add, his springboard back elbow off of the cage, his being Shamrock's pronoun, was pretty awesome, actually. Oh, no doubt. I, like, I remember watching it for the first time and popping, and then when I did the rewatch uh, earlier today, because traditionally when Patrick and I go to do these reviews, even if they're shows that we've seen before, we usually rewatch them if we have the time to do so in order to refresh ourselves so we don't sound like complete and total bumbling idiots while discussing the show. Not that that doesn't happen anyway. I remember 
I remember majorly popping for it the first time I saw it when I watched the DVD copy of the show that I have, and then going back and rewatching it on the network, I found myself popping for it again when he did that springboard out, back elbow off of the uh, inside of the caging as well once again. And I'm sorry, real quick, there is one thing, one aspect of this match I did want to touch on. JR, you can try to talk all you want to about that map being as hard as concrete. That was a wrestling canvas, and you know damn well that it was. It actually did look a little stiff. No, like, not stiffer. at all. It, okay, maybe stiffer than a traditional ring, but that there's no way that was like a actual like a boxing match. There was some definite give to that canvas. You could tell mostly because like when they would run and stuff, you could hear the canvas shaking underneath them. That's a fair point, but at the same time, it probably legitimately would be a little stiffer because it's smaller. Okay, yeah, there's less room to give and but, stuff, and that, that I would agree with. I will agree with you. concrete, no. No, definitely not. I think that was a bit of hyperbole on the, on the part of JR there. Yeah. So, not, not really a bad match. Owen definitely seems out of place. I can't believe I'm saying this. I almost, I can't, I can't believe I'm actually going to say this. I actually prefer the dungeon match, as goofy as that one was. I... I think I disagree, but mostly because I like to finish this match more than I like to finish the dungeon match. Like, I get the slime ball heel aspect of Owen hitting Shamrock with a, with a barbell, not a barbell, a weight that you would put on a barbell. Like, I get the idea behind the finish there. But this one right here, you tell an emotional story with it of Owen calling for the towel to be thrown in by Severn and Severn giving up on Owen and walking out on him without it throwing in the towel, thus for, forcing Owen to tap out. I mean, it makes sense. It makes complete and total sense. Also, uh, the thing that got me with this match, you know, you, you mentioned that you popped for the uh, backhand spring elbow, essentially. Uh, uh, for me, or springboard elbow. elbow. Yes, yeah, springboard Sorry. back elbow. Um, the referee running around on the catwalk. <laughs> because for some <laughs> reason, a dodecahedron needs a catwalk. I get that it was to make sure, you know, that the referee had a good view of the action, but at the same time, just put the damn referee in the lion's den. Uh, you know what I think it had to do with that there? It's the fact that that, 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 that setup was so damn small that they didn't really yeah. want to sacrifice the room inside of the cage for the referee to be there. I mean, WCW referees were okay with climbing on the ropes. Why the hell couldn't a WWF referee climb on the cage? Because... If he slanted outward, he could. Well, yeah, I mean, technically, sure. But at the same time, I would imagine, like, how Owen was constantly throwing Shamrock into the cage, you would assume that the referee would probably lose his grip when he was being thrown in there. And if the referee doesn't lose his grip, then it kind of telltales that the cage is gimmick. I suppose. That or it's a really, really freaking strong referee. Take your pick, I suppose. I guess. Alrighty. Next match time? Absolutely. I don't know that I want to talk about this one. It is anything goes 
Falls Town Anywhere, our second handicap match of the night. This one happens to be for the WWF Tag Team Championship. It is the New Age Outlaws facing off supposedly against Mankind and Kane, but over the course of the night, we find out it would only be Mankind. However, Mankind did at one point try to get out of the match, which, you know, common sense. But Vince McMahon, I I love JR's line, Vince McMahon can talk a fish out of water and convince him to take a walk with him, convinces Mankind to defend the belts, guaranteeing immortality if Mankind were able to defend and retain the championships and a guarantee that you'll be in the Madison Square Garden Hall of Fame by next week. I'll see to it personally. Yeah. No. Well, technically, if anybody had the stroke, no pun intended, to get that done back then, it would have been Vince. I mean, Vince in the Garden had that. It was the mecca for the WWF, you know? It was the WWF's place. It was where everything major in WWF history had happened. WrestleMania 1 was there. WrestleMania 10 was there. Um, Some of the biggest moments in company history had occurred in this very building. I believe McMahon taking the stunner for the first time was in the garden. It was. 97. Worst stunner ever. Second worst. Well, no, the worst stunner ever. Uh, Any stunner that Linda took was worse than the one that Vince took, but still, regardless. Linda bent her knees and went down. Vince did the infamous water bottle flop. Okay, that fish flop was funny. I'm sorry, it was. I chuckle anyway, at that. Every time I see it, I chuckle at that. Anyway. Yes. Um, so, as Patrick, yeah, as Patrick mentioned, Kane never shows up, and Mick Foley more or less gets it handed to him for the better part of about five minutes. There are a couple of of hope spots for Foley in here, but luckily there's nothing too drastic in my opinion. The finish looks rough, but at the same time, it's not like Foley hadn't undergone rougher just two months prior at the King of the Ring in 1998, a show that we will eventually get to, we promise. It's a one-match show. We still need to review it for historical content. Maybe. Anyway, um, we should also mention who accompanies the New Age Outlaws to the ring. Um, I don't remember who accompanied them to the ring. The diggity diggity disaster. Oh, yeah, that. Well, that ties into the post-match. It does. As the New Age Outlaws were coming out, they also brought with them a dumpster, similar to the one that would be used in the dumpster match that Mick Foley, a.k.a. Mankind. Now, here's my question. Was that a dumpster or a trash receptacle? Dumpster. So they actually had the name brand version this time. Good for them. They sprung for the good one. (laughs) At least I hope so, because Road Dog calls it a diggity diggity disaster, like an idiot. Yeah, well, no one ever said Road Dog was smart. Uh, I've got reasons that came out today why I could call him smart. I'll S. talk about that offline. S.Gommer at gmail.com for any and all complaints. No, 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 no. This is a good thing for him. Very good thing. No, I mean for any complaints about me calling Road Dog not smart. S.Gommer uh, at gmail.com. Okay, very good. Anyway, 
Um, yeah, Mankind gets his ass kicked. Mankind takes a spike pile and drives around to a championship belt. The New Age Outlaws win, even though technically it was illegal because, well, JR brought it up. Weren't they still supposed to tag? It was for the tag team championships. Yeah, but at the same time, there was no hold barred, so it's not like the referee can disqualify them for not getting out of the ring either. Fair point. To which the New Age Outlaws then proceed to throw mankind into the dumpster. Diggity, diggity. Shut up. <laughs> You've been doing it the entire night. I figured I'd get one in. No. My joke. My bad joke. <laughs> All right, fair enough. To which, to which, somehow miraculously, Kane pops out of it with a sledgehammer and proceeds to... Wait, 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 wait. We're, we're putting the cart before the horse here. Not just any sledgehammer. Mick's sledgehammer from earlier in the show that he was threatening to use as a weapon on the outlaw but then went missing when he was having his backstage segment with Vince McMahon. Very true. Thank you. Continuity. Holy crap. I know. What the hell is that? To which Kane proceeds to use it on mankind and... Mm, what's the word I'm looking for? Murder. He murders mankind. <laughs> Murder, death, kill. Yes. Because that's pretty much what he tries to do with Kane, or what Kane tries to do with Mankind. Well, I mean, believe Mankind would be out for some time after this to finally heal up from his injuries that he garnered at King of the Ring. Uh, no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Breakdown's the next (laughs) pay-per-view. He's in the triple threat cage match with Shamrock and Rock. I thought he was largely not there, though, or at least largely not in matches. Well, maybe on television, but he was definitely in-ring at the next pay-per-view. Oh, I know that. It's probably part of the reason why he was putting the triple threat. Well, yeah, kind of to protect him. I mean, Foley wouldn't take on a major role in the company's plans until September of... Or not September, until uh, November of 1998 in the Survivor Series, which is... Another show that I do think we need to do at some point, even though we may have to institute WCW rules for that show. Mm. Anyway. So, the New Age Outlaws are the new tag team champions. Hmm. X-Pac wins hair versus hair. New Age Outlaws win the tag team titles. So that leaves all but one member. Once you know it, that's our next contest. It is a ladder match for the Intercontinental Championship. What? Segway. Yeah, my voice shot. I know. <laughs> Triple H challenges The Rock in a ladder match for The Rock's Intercontinental Championship. Triple H accompanied to the ring by China, who, to be fair, actually looked pretty hot. The Rock uh, no, is accompanied to the ring by a much less hot Mark Henry. Okay, uh, agree on the less hot Mark Henry just because of, you know, woman. But uh, China still kind of looked like a dude at this point. This was pre the facial reconstruction and everything that helped her lose some of the edge that the G1 
he originally had of how do I put Um, I, I hate to make this comparison, but I feel it apt. She kind of looks like Nicole Bass a little bit. Ooh. See, I was going to go with China was up there with Sergeant Slaughter in who had the squarest chin. Well, I, I'm not disagreeing with that, but at the same time, I think at this point here, she definitely had a much more, a much more manly look to her than yeah. the more feminine look that we would get from China after the after the facial reconstruction, the nose, the chin, and I believe she underwent a second augmentation on her tits as well. Excuse me, her boobs, I'm mistake. Yeah, crazy, dude. <laughs> anyway. Don't think, don't think we can say that other word. I apologize for that. That's on me. Let's, let's. Anyway. Um, all right. <laughs> I'll just get it out there because I pretty much let it be known. This is one of my favorite ladder matches, and I'm dead serious, because the bar was set low for them in terms of pay-per-view matches, because their 30-minute, two-out-of-three-falls match the month prior, not bad, but not great. But to me, this one delivered and more, and it's two guys you would not expect to have a great ladder match. When you think ladder match, you kind of think high flyers or, you know, fast movers and things like that. You know, Shawn Michaels, the Hardys, uh, Edge and Christian. But to me, I thought Triple H and The Rock complemented each other so damn well and were able to pull it off with two ladders. I originally thought it was only one. It turns out it was two. But even still, it wasn't the you know, eight-ladder match that you have more or less these days. They just went out there and essentially had a wrestling match that used very liberal use of ladders. I thought it was actually a, one of the best matches. Good, not great to me. I, I don't put it in the echelon. Sacrilegious! I'm kidding. I don't put in the echelon of great, the greatest ladder matches of all time. It's very good. To me, um, it's probably Triple H and Rock's best ladder matches individually. I think we can agree on that. Yeah. With that being said, while I do believe that the, the much-heralded Shawn Michaels-Razor Ramon ladder match from WrestleMania 10 is slightly overrated, I don't think told, that another one. I thought one the of Shawn, second one was better. I don't think that another one of Shawn Michaels' ladder matches, that specifically being the ladder match against Chris Jericho at No Mercy in 2008, gets anywhere near the credit it deserves for being as good as it was. In my opinion, the Jericho Shawn Michaels match from No Mercy in 2008, and yeah, there may be a little bit of personal bias here with the whole Jericho thing for me. But to me, that's the best ladder match that WWF has ever produced, one-on-one. If you're getting into tag team ladder matches, then you almost have to go with tables, ladders, and chairs, be it TLC 1 from SummerSlam 2000 or TLC 2 from uh, WrestleMania 17. Wow. There's another Jericho ladder match that I can think of that isn't getting love, but... Jer- like well, other- I- 
the other I half of that match is kind of the Yeah, I was just about to say, I know the one you're referring to, Royal Rumble 2001, and yes, it's a great match, but in hindsight, knowing what we know about one half of the participants and some of the bumps that he takes in this match, it becomes a little bit difficult to watch. Yeah. Um, I, I think part of my love for this specific one is the fact that it's not something you would have expected from them. You would have expected a very good match, but to me, I thought they delivered and then over-delivered given the styles that they had. Is it not their best match together? No. I thought they had an even longer one that I thought was even better and does hold my regard as my favorite Iron Man match. Yes, even over Angle and Lesnar. I was just about to say uh, you're referring to Backlash 1999 and the Iron Man match. Uh, or Backlash 2000. Backlash 2000, sorry. No, oh, no Judgment, Judgment, Judgment Day, Day 2000. 2000. Yeah, Judgment Day 2000. Austin's out with his neck injury. Backlash was the rematch where Rock gets the belt back. Judgment Day is Iron Man where Triple H wins it when Rock gets disqualified after Triple H gets choke slammed by ABA Taker? Yep, the returning ABA Taker. The debuting ABA Taker, the returning Undertaker. All right, if you want to get technical. But yeah, um, no, I, that, that Iron Man match is up there for me as well. I think Lesnar angles a little bit better, but Triple H and Rock is very entertaining as well. Um, Back to this, I will one hundred actual match. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will one hundred percent agree with you that you would not expect these two to be able to pull off a competent one-on-one ladder match, but that is exactly what they do here. And I think a lot of that has to do with the minimal involvement from the two outside forces. The only time you really see Mark Henry and China get involved is when Henry throws powder into Triple H's eyes to kind of stagger him from being able to grab the belt, and Rock's able to stop him up at the top with a couple of punches. And then China, obviously, at the tail end for the finish when she comes in and goes south of the Mason-Dixon on the rock with a low, with, a, with an uppercut to directly lead to the finish. <laughs> Mason-Dixon. <clears throat> Thanks for ruining it by explaining it. <laughs> anyway. And- Anything um, else to add for this match? I do have one small gripe. Okay. The actual ending. The actual ending itself, because it's essentially it's not a clean finish. It's triple or rather it's China or Jesus. It's Triple H winning due to China's direct involvement, whereas you could make the argument though that she does offset you know, uh, Mark Henry's direct involvement as well. But it's kind of like, what's the, what was the video game where it was press L1 for your buddy? Streets of Rage? Ah, you're not a video game person. You're on your own on this one. Sorry. I think it was, I, I could very well be wrong. I know there was a game where it was like press L1 to have your buddy interfere kind of thing. I have to go back and watch OSW review of WrestleMania X7 to find that one out because they talk about TLC2 that way. Anyway, um, I just I I don't I really don't even know why this is just held in such high regard for me, but it is.
I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say it was a bad match or anything because it's not. Uh, I, like I said at the very start of my talking about this match, it's a good match. It's not great, but it's very good. I know you don't like doing the star ratings, and we usually save them there, but I would put this somewhere around four. Main event time? Let's do it. All roads on the highway to hell lead here. For the WWF Championship, Stone Cold Steve Austin defends his title against The Undertaker. And The Undertaker insists that he will not be held by Kane. At one point, Kane even does come out and is sent back by The Undertaker, making this a straight-up one-on-one match. Austin does get kind of a cool entrance, although I wasn't too fond of the cartoon that they used. I preferred the WrestleMania 13 entrance class. I thought this one looked kind of cartoony and goofy. Yeah, the actual glass shatters from his match with Bret Hart is much cooler. Yeah. Oh, wait, we're, we're um, skipping something here. Is that on purpose, or are we are we going to touch on it later? Well, no, go ahead. The the post-match interview segment with Rock, we kind of teased it earlier because we mentioned oh, yeah. here Bruce Pritchard in there. The WWF you see video, him, too. The WWF home video exclusive interview with The Rock after the ladder match where he basically tells Triple H that, yeah, he may have won tonight, but it, it's far from over between them, and once the time comes, The Rock will get his revenge and he will take back what is his. Uh, the, next two, the next time these two would face would not be for the Intercontinental title, however. It would be for the WWF Championship, I believe. That The Rock would win just three months later at the Survivor Series in the Deadly Game. Coming soon to a wrestle unwrapped review near you, Patrick. Not soon, anyway. We could always do uh, another three-pack for November. No. I meant to bring. I meant to bring this up to you earlier. Now it seems like as good a time as any. We'll November see. 1st. Fine. Anyway, main event time. Okay. Stone Cold versus the Undertaker. Stone Cold's WWF Championship is on the line. Which, by the way, they're using the Smoking Skull belt. My favorite ever. Actually, my favorite specialty belt, I should say. I, 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 don't, like, guy, but. I don't like specialty belts. Uh, I, I, I think they they do disservice to the belt. And we've had this discussion recently in regards to Naomi glowifying the SmackDown women's title. I hated that. But um, and I will agree with you on the other thing you said, though. I am also a winged eagle guy. The winged eagle is my favorite WWF title as well. Wow, we actually agree on something. It's a rarity, but it does happen. True. Okay, so um, we were in the middle of talking about this match, and you mentioned the fact that Kane had come out to get involved a couple of uh, once, but The Undertaker sent him to the back because The Undertaker had promised that this would be a straight-up one-on-one match between he and Steve Austin. Unfortunately, I feel like this match could have used a little bit of help because of one, something that happened early on in the contest, and I think we, we kind of have to address it. This match is oh, not yeah. nearly... This match is not nearly as good as Undertaker and Austin are capable of. But I think a lot of that goes on to the fact that a couple of minutes into the match, this, this wires get crossed 
somewhere along the lines, and both men duck their heads at the same time, and they collide heads. And Austin ends up concussed from this. Not only concussed, but for at least, a, depending on who you ask, for either a few seconds or up to a minute, Austin is out cold. Well, he gets back to his feet shortly thereafter, so I'd say it was probably no more than 10 to 15 seconds that Austin may have yeah. been out. But he was definitely out of it for a little bit there. There was not a whole lot in the way of motion. And let's not forget, this is the same guy who would, had who had suffered severe neck trauma just a year prior at SummerSlam in 1997. So him having any kind of any kind of trauma that affects the neck, such as colliding heads like this would have done, is something that would have been ground for major concern for the World Wrestling Federation. No doubt. And by the way, I should say kudos to Lawler and Ross for picking up on it almost immediately. Like, within 30 seconds after it happened, they're realizing, um, Austin's not himself. I think they butted heads. Oh, no, they say it happens, they say it happened when it happened. Ross, yeah. clear as day, says it looks like they collided heads there. I, I'm not sure what was going on there, but both men just smacked heads there, and then he mentioned that Austin was the worst for wear out of it because Taker's the larger guy, so obviously he's going to come up on the probable better end of that. I mean, Taker's six foot. 10, 6, 11, depending. Build at 7. Build at 7, but not. Like 6, 10, and probably about 300 pounds at this point, whereas Austin's like 6 foot 5 and maybe 250. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think Ross does mention that Undertaker had about a 50-pound weight advantage on Austin. Yeah, so I think Austin... Traditionally, Austin was billed around 250, 255 for his wrestling career, whereas Taker was always billed in the neighborhood of around 300 pounds. Which again, six foot ten, six foot eleven, so understandable. And for those keeping track, Rock was always six six two twenty five. Not sure how relevant, but okay. Moving on. Just because. Anyway, um, but yeah, I will this say, match definitely tanks a little bit. Uh, it, I mean, it still has its moments. So I got three simple words for you. That leg drop, though. Yeah, holy cow, I'm shocked they still did that. And so at one point... I'll go ahead and describe the spot, and then I'll ask a question about it. So at one point, they are fighting outside, you know, going around the ring, and Undertaker lays out Austin onto, I believe, those poor unlucky sons of guns, the Spanish announce table. <laughs> Sorry, Hugo and Carlos. The Undertaker then proceeds to climb to the top rope. Now, real quick, I'm going to make mention of something extra before you make your point, Harry. Undertaker then proceeds to actually drop the leg from the top rope all the way to the table. One problem. The table doesn't break, and they essentially just go sliding down the table into the chairs that the commentators are sitting in. Part of the reason, and and then Bear's mentioning, part of the reason why Undertaker was able to do this was because they were using the small Madison Square Garden setup. So they used the small entryway. Um, For those keeping track, if you watched WrestleMania 20, the doors where those screens were that faced the hard camera, it was that entrance. 
And because of that, the entire area where the ring is and the entire commentary area is much closer together, basically so that they could smash in as many people as possible. So they had less room to clear, and Undertaker then proceeds to drop a leg. Ow. Brother. It came crashing down. And, well, actually, no, the table didn't come crashing down. Yeah, but it definitely hurt inside. Inside of Austin's head. Or Taker's ass. And that kind of takes me to what I wanted to say about this particular spot. Um, okay, so if they knew Taker was going to do the flying leg drop here, why did they not gimmick that table? Because that table gave them almost nothing in regards to give. That yeah, it... had... Oof. That had to suck. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of the other match where that happens, where I think a pile driver threw a table and only the table cracks in the middle. Uh, Street fight at the garden. I think. I think Cactus Jack goes to hit a pile driver on Triple H, but the table doesn't break. Um, I know the finish to that match is a pile driver threw a table on the ramp. So no, not that one. The, not that street fight at the Garden. The other street fight at the Garden. I don't remember another street fight at the Garden. You'll have to refresh my memory. We'll talk about it off air. Moving on. Royal Rumble 2000. Oh, that street fight. Okay. It's one of the greatest street fights ever. How do you forget? Do you know how, do you know how many freaking shows we've covered? Plus, not to mention, we're freaking three and a half hours deep into tonight's recording. <clears throat> Dead. <laughs> We're killing the town, bro. <laughs> anyway. Um, and it's actually about that point, just after they finally get back into the ring, I think that King does make his appearance and Undertaker sends him away. I thought it happened like midway through the match. Yeah, for some odd reason, um... I actually like the fact that Kane that uh, Kane did try to come out because you can tell that as uh, Vince trying to send out extra reinforcements to help take down Austin and Taker wanting to be a man of his word. And not to mention, you see that in another context a little bit later on in the match when uh, Taker actually hands Austin the title belt back after Austin takes him clean with the stunner. Here's my question. Is there an outside chance they realize Austin's messed up at this point and they do this unplanned? The sending Kane to the back thing? Well, sending Kane out, just have Undertaker send him back. Essentially Maybe. try and stall time to have Austin kind of clear his head a little bit. You know what? I didn't think about that, but now that you mentioned it, that actually does seem like a very likely possibility in order to buy time for Austin. Especially if, because as most people do know, if you don't know, most of the time when it comes to WWF matches, the referees are wearing an airpiece and they're in direct communication with the gorilla position backstage. And I would assume for this particular match, while it may have been Bruce Pritchard at Gorilla, Vince McMahon was probably right there next to him. Yep. So. Um, there, um, is one other, there is one other thing about this match that I do want to talk about. However, it becomes more important a little bit later on in the in the broadcast. And if you don't understand what that means, you will shortly. So, before we get to that, though, let's get to the finish of this one, and that is Austin hits a stunner and wins. Good night. 
I mean, long story short, Austin does hit the stunner to pin The Undertaker clean as a whistle in the middle of the ring, in the middle of Madison Square Garden, one, two, three, and retains the championship. The odd thing comes after that when, when The Undertaker does the former champion torch passing, even though he's not the former champion. He presents Austin with the belt. You could make the argument that's a little bit of a passing of the torch, although, you know, who, who still uh, bears the torch now in 2017? Mm-hmm. And as JR puts it, it's kind of a, you got me here, but there will be another time, and I will get you that time. But you got me here. Yeah, I think I, I like it. Yeah, I think this is more of a, not to mention, I think this was kind of, maybe sort of a little unplanned as well. And the reason I say that is it was kind of Taker's way of saying, way to gut it out in there, man. Yeah. Because, let's be honest, Austin had his bell rung for the vast majority of his match, and this thing could have entirely fallen to pieces, but it didn't. They still turned in a serviceable performance for a main event, not the blockbuster main event that maybe most people were expecting going into the show due to the hype and the expectations going into this match, but still one that was definitely worth the time spent watching it as well as the time spent to all of the development that had gone into the match as well. Pop quiz for you. Who's the biggest critic of this match? The Undertaker. No. Austin? Yep. Austin hates this match. For obvious reasons. Well, in fairness, hasn't Austin said that he has a hard time going back and watching this match because he knows where he got knocked out and you can see the match kind of fall off a cliff from there? Well, it's really easy to see. But yes, Austin actually hates this match and wishes that he could have been standing, I believe, two inches back because then The Undertaker would have cleared his chin. And then they could have had a much more uh, drama-filled, much bigger match like they wanted. But they couldn't do as much because, as we've mentioned multiple times, Austin had his bell rung and was foggy for almost the entire match. So... That about wraps up the pay-per-view. Shall we go to the big finish? Only thing left to do to wrap up this long night of recording. You insisted on two in one night. Anyway. We kind of had to in order to get them both in in August. Big finish time. Best and worst <laughs> match. Our cash and our trash of the show. I feel like this one's going to be unanimous. What is your worst match of the show? You know what? I'm actually going to go with the mixed tag match. And the reason I'm going to go with the mixed tag match is because I think that the Oddities match was meant to be as bad as it was. It was there as to give give the crowd something that they can, like I said, it, it was a popcorn match in order to give the crowd a chance to go get concessions, go use the restroom and be able to stay tuned to the important matches that were still to come. The hair versus hair match, the mixed tag match, which in my opinion does not deliver. And more specifically, the, the two main event matches, the latter match as well as the main event itself. What's your worst match, Patrick? 
I'm shocked we're disagreeing here because I am going to take the one that you already mentioned. I am going with the, the well, first handicap match, the bigger handicap match. I probably would be okay if it was later in the show and meant to be a break, but this match, uh, to quote Bruce Pritchard, was also much like how my mother was on Saturday. Too much Gaga. She went to the Lady, Lady Gaga concert at Wrigley Field. I don't think there was an actual wrestling move hitting the damn match by the oddities. I know Kai and Ty did a couple things, but I just found the whole thing stupid and would have been better suited possibly for later in the show as a break there. Maybe switch it with the Lions Den match. Maybe even switch it with the hair versus hair. But not the second match on the show. It just uh, left a bad taste in my mouth. Switching gears, what is the best match of the show to you? I really enjoy the D'Lo Val Venus match to open the show. I really enjoy the X-Pac and Jeff Jarrett match as well. But neither one of them are comparable quality-wise to the Triple H Rock ladder match. So I'm going to go with the ladder match. We agree. Well, uh, yours was blatantly obvious by the way you were kissing its ass throughout the show. And you can kiss my ass now. Wrestling Unwrapped, ladies and gentlemen, our final episode. <laughs> Most likely. Hey, we we we. We got away with what we pulled in the Spring Stampede 2000 episode, available in the W2M archives. So I think we're fine here. I'm also being told I can't say balls. Mahoney. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> why the ladder match? I just said so because of the fact that they actually managed to tell a cohesive story going into it as well. They had the rock focus on a body part. They kept the outside interference to a minimum, except in order to protect the rock for the finish, which I thought was smart with the plans that they had for him just three months later at the Survivor Series. And they managed to have a nice baby face moment for Triple H as well in the fact that he overcame all of the odds of having his knee belt shotted earlier in the night on heat, which they showed on a replay before the match happened. And then all of the work and the damage that The Rock put in on the knee throughout the course of the match, they gave The Rock an out of having China stop him from regaining the title, but Triple H still looks gritty in order to overcome the knee injury that he had suffered and grab the Intercontinental title for himself. Overcoming the odds? Oh, sorry. There's a storyline, there's good in-ring action, and it plays off the continuity that you were rewarded with as a longtime fan back then. Folks, what he said. No, um, like I said, I just and, and for me, it's also the fact that it's two guys that you really didn't expect to have that kind of a quality ladder match. Obviously, The Rock and Triple H weren't even in their prime yet, and were still two of the best in the WWF by this point. So, what better way to feature them by giving them a big time match? You know, would would it have been better suited for a different kind of match? Possibly, but I think. Given what, given the story that they told, and given how everything finishes off, like you said, with uh, with the huge, you know, babyface moment, and you could make the argument with the biggest pop of the night when Triple H pulls that belt down. 
I, um, I, I absolutely love I said one possibly. I would say Austin's was better, but yeah, it was a very strong pop for Triple H. Yeah. So I just I I really do love this match. And I'm not even like joking around or anything. It is one of my favorite ladder matches. So yeah, of course I'm gonna call it the best match of the night. <laughs> what is your cash for this? You know how I mentioned that we would talk about the main event a little bit later? Yes. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this because we talked about this off air, so I want you to let me have the floor here. I do not want you to butt in and speak about this until I'm done because I know your opinions on this and I know that she is a friend of yours, so you have a very devotely personal connection to this. I know. Professional wrestling in general is a business where you are quite literally putting your life and your well-being into somebody else's hands. You have to work with each other in order to provide the best possible product both for the viewers inside of the arena, Madison Court Garden in this particular evening, as well as the viewers at home, the pay-per-view audience that this would reach, the WWE Network audience that would watch it now in hindsight. In order to do that, you have to be a professional. The big talk of this past weekend, this is being recorded, as Patrick said, August 27, 2017, a shade north of 19 years after this particular after this particular summer slam, excuse me. The big talk of this weekend in the wrestling business was what happened at Triple Mania on Saturday the 26th. When TNA slash DFW now, Global Force Wrestling performer Rosemary, a.k.a. Courtney Rush, was involved in a triple threat match for the Reina de Reina's title at Triple Mania. That would be the AAA women's title, Queen of Queens, the literal translation, with Lady Shawnee and Sexy Star. May I interrupt for one moment, just to straighten one thing. It was a okay. fatal four-way that also included Ayako Hamada. Okay, thank you. Okay, Paul, I do not follow AAA, but I've heard the story about what happened here, and I feel the need to address this in order to describe why my cash is what my cash is. Sexy Star went into business for herself in this match and proceeded to hurt Rosemary, Courtney, call her what you will, with an arm bar a legitimately dangerous move in the world of professional wrestling because if you don't like somebody and you put them in an arm bar, it is very easily to, very easy to overstretch them and hurt them in a number of different ways. Courtney Rush suffered a shoulder injury throughout the course of that arm bar. How does this tie into my cash for this show, you ask? We talked about it during the match description itself. Steve Austin and The Undertaker butthead relatively early into their contest, and Austin is knocked clean out and concussed in the process. The Undertaker, being a professional, realizes this and protects Austin for the rest of the match. If you look closely on the leg drop, Taker's leg is off of, the, off of Austin's neck when he hits the leg drop off of the turnbuckle 
which I think is part of the reason why the table doesn't break properly because he doesn't hit that leg drop full force in order to protect Austin. Baker is not nearly as snug as the Austin match traditionally is because he knows that hitting Austin in the head at this particular moment is not a wise decision. The Undertaker protects Steve Austin because the Undertaker is a professional. Sexy star, it's plain and simple. Sean, forgive me afterwards. It's a goddamn work. Patrick, what's your cash for this show? Sorry. Um, <laughs> I should have gone first this time. Yeah. Um, to, to, to quote Dolph Ziggler, follow that. Thanks. Um, it's the fact of... It's somewhat of a look to the future. And what I mean by that is Undertaker arguably passes the torch to Steve Austin. Granted, you know, Steve Austin would end up running into issues just over a year later, but for almost, well, for definitely the rest of 1998 and for most of 1999, the WWF was on Austin's shoulders. The Rock and Triple H tear the house down and then build it back up and tear it down again, signifying the future of what the WWF has to off, has to look forward to when Austin ends up being injured or too injured to compete around the time of Survivor Series 1999. They would end up taking the ball and running with it after. Plus, you have kind of the undercard a little bit. D'Lo Brown, you have Owen Hart until he would tragically pass on less than a year later. Val Venus. This doesn't even include the incredible superstars that they're going to get, but they're kind of proving by this point they have everything together. The big complaint going into early 1998 was WCW had an incredible undercard and a lackluster main event, while the WWF had a lackluster undercard and an incredible main event. They're now changing that at this point, and this was kind of the main feature of that. Yes, you have some goofy stuff like the oddities and Kai, but for all of that, you have... Jeff Jarrett, you have X-Pac, you have D'Lo Brown, you have Val Venus. You're going to, in about a year's time, or a little over a year's time, year and a half on the far end, have Chris Jericho, Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, Chris Benoit, um, and Eddie Guerrero. This is one incredible look to the future. This was the young guys winning. And, and for the most part, the good guys winning on a largely heel pay-per-view. I think in the history of SummerSlam, it's been more of a heel pay-per-view than a face pay-per-view. So that's, that's my cash of this. Is this is kind of a look to the future of what the WWF has to offer and why it would be two and a half more years 
before the Monday Night War is over. Switching gears. What is your trash for this show? I think this one we might agree on. Because um, we, we're both basing this review off of the WWE Network version of the show. In my DVD collection, I have an actual pay-per-view copy of this particular show because I always enjoyed having everything left intact. And this was before the network was in existence when I was collecting DVDs like this. This particular show that I have has both Sunday Night Heat included and then the completely unedited pay-per-view copy of the show itself. And while I may not be the world's biggest fan of the Insane Clown Posse, it happened. While I may have not... I may not be the world's biggest fan of ACDC. Their song for the opening video package happened. I don't like the fact that you're going to name the WWE Network as your home for all things in the WWE history uncensored the way that they were back then. And then you're going to selectively edit things out of shows without announcing ahead of time that, oh, by the way, due to licensing rights, certain things in this show, in this broadcast, have been changed. You put a disclaimer on there that says things have been changed, then I'm a little more likely to buy it because at least you're letting me know in advance. I, I remember watching this show before. I remember seeing a clean, a clean pay-per-view copy of this show before. I know about the Highway to Hell song at the beginning of the show. I know about the Insane Clown Posse performance for both the, intro, the entrance and the exit. It adds to the atmosphere of the Oddities match. The match isn't great, obviously, but it adds to the atmosphere, and I think that's part of the reason why I'm a little bit more okay with that contest than I was with the mixed tag match that I felt was a waste of Murrow and Edge for his pay-per-view debut. Therefore, I'm going to go with the editing that happens through the WWE Network. Pretty sure we're going to agree on this one, Patrick. No. Close, but no. Um, my trash is, it's something I kind of mentioned when we were talking about that specific mixed tag match. And the fact that when Sable makes that announcement, you don't hear that announcement until you hear Edge's music play. This was a night marred by audio issues. The, possibly the worst that I had seen since we reviewed WrestleMania 11, which I know was a night totally marred by audio issues. It happened with Sable, and it definitely, I believe, one or two of the promos also had issues with the mics. I want to say the Mankind one. They had issues with the mics to where you, you don't hear the first couple words. It's one of those things where it's a stupid, dinky thing, but when you're the biggest wrestling company in the world, arguably the second at this exact point in time, but you're damn close to being number one, it makes you look bush league. And it's one of those things where it's like, 
no matter the big show that WWS is doing, they're always marred by audio issues. WrestleMania 11, 12, I believe 14 had issues, I believe 15 had issues, and multiple SummerSlams, especially ones where promos are dominant. I want to say there were audio issues with uh, Stephanie McMahon and Kurt Angle when they cut their promo at SummerSlam 2000. Granted, that may have been an unplanned promo, but point stands. Work on your damn microphones. And stop editing your damn show so much. Yes, I will give a special mention to that. So, fix your audio issues. It makes you look stupid. This is the kind of stuff that you expect, would expect from ECW. This yes. is the kind of stuff that you would kind of expect from WCW due to the fact that, well, let's be honest, because WCW. This is not something that the number one organization in the wrestling world should be having such constant recurring issues with. By the way, you said that the full runtime of the show was 246? Um, the official full runtime of the show that I have on the copy that I have. Well, in actuality, the copy that I have is just a shade under four hours, but that's because it includes Sunday Night Heat, which is another 45 minutes. So I'd say probably around 247 to 48, somewhere in that range. Does it have the Highway to Hell hype-up video in it, the actual video? Yes, it does then it has to be even longer because that's a, like, three-and-a-half-minute video. That's the one that bugs me the most out of the editing because that's the match. That's what you're putting the back or That's what you're putting this pay-per-view on the back of. That's the one that drives me nuts. I can lose out on ICP. I can even lose out on the entrance video. That's the one that pisses me off is that the hype-up video for your main event is nowhere to be seen. So, but You know what the worst part of it is, too, though, is the fact that they actually leave in JR and King teasing it and then shoot right to uh, Tony Chimmel for the introduction for the match. Yep. Like, you rat bastard. Yep. Alrighty. Before we get out of here... Finally, what is your final score for SummerSlam 1998? You know, maybe it's because we just got done reviewing Road Wild 1998, and that show was just so embarrassingly bad on some some levels. There's nothing that sinks to anywhere near the depth of awful that is Road Wild on this show. There are a couple of matches that, yeah, they probably waste your time, but let's be honest, if you're watching this show, you can probably just have it on as background noise for that. This show right here, you're watching it for The Undertaker versus Austin. You're watching it for the ladder match. You're watching it for the Lions gang. New concept. Taker Austin had months of build going into it. Austin and Rock, or Triple H and The Rock, with this Patrick mentioned, the launch of two main event careers in the WWF. Seven and a half. Obviously, the fact that we just did it, I know the score for Road Wild. I'm trying to remember the scores we gave Heat Wave. Oh, they were low. We were both disappointed by Heat Wave. I want to say we both gave it like a four. Uh, that was Living Dangerously. I want to say we went five and six. I don't think I went six. 
I think I may have. Either way, I think it's very fair to say out of the three, this blows the other two away without a shadow of a doubt. Yes, it's marred by audio issues. Yes, there's some, as, as a Polish person, I'm allowed to say this, tchotchke, useless crap. But every match that you want to deliver, delivers. And some of the matches you aren't expecting to deliver as much, go above and beyond. The opener, obviously, I'm talking about there. And to a point, the hair versus hair match. Well, I, I, I had pretty decent expectations for hair versus hair because I know that, yeah, Jarrett catches a lot of slack, but he was a good worker back then, and Waltman's always been known as a good worker. Exactly. So this, to me, delivers unlike any pay-per-view, especially before this. I would even rank this above WrestleMania 14, which I don't know that we went super high on either. This one... Undertaker carries Austin. Rock and Triple H prove themselves. The opener is an incredible match. The big handicap was what it was, and the tag kind of match was what it was. Everything else delivers, and then some. Maybe the main event didn't get the heat that it wanted, or at least that one of its you know, competitors wanted, but... Undertaker carries Austin like the professional he is. Eight. One of the highest rankings I've ever given a show, and I'm, I have no issues giving it that high of a score. Eight. Yeah, I'm half tempted to actually go back and listen to the end, the big finish for our previous episodes, just to kind of log where we put each of our previous episodes in terms of overall ratings and add those to our written reviews which will return in September due to the fact that August has just been unbearably busy for both of us. Just not the first weekend in September for one of us. Oh, you got plans next weekend, do you? Yes, I do. I'll tell you about them off air. However, what we do have planned next week as we get out of here after a very long recording day is next week we're going back to a little hall in Berwyn. And we may have to institute WCW rules for this one. Oh, so many matches. Fourteen matches. It's the show that Harry will have no problems with reviewing. It's a show that could get me into deep, deep trouble. As we go back to, not that far off, last November, I don't remember the exact date, from the Berwyn Eagles Club, it is the debut show, yet another debut for us. It is Rise 1. And we'll get more into details about what Rise is and everything about that next week. However, until next week, or before we even get to that, should mention... Allow me. What? Okay. The preceding broadcast has been brought to you by the W2M Network, which is available online at w2mnet.com. There you will find all of the previous episodes of Wrestling Unwrapped, as well as your other favorites on the W2M Network, such as 
football to the max, wrestling to the max, MMA to the max, running wild, the Stephen Ur show, and so many others that you can find in association with us here at the W2 Network. In addition, the written reviews, as mentioned, will be making their return during September. Patrick and I both found ourselves very busy this August. Therefore, we will be getting back to those as soon as we can because we both know we have some ground to make up in order to catch up to current day with those. Also, if you aren't listening to us on the on W2Mnet.com, we encourage you to check out the site. But we thank you for listening and the other available sources for our show, such as 411mania.com and lastwordonsports.com, as well as the various podcast listening locations as well, which Patrick would know better than I. All set? Well, you might want to talk about the other places they can find our podcast, such as, like, you know, Stitcher, iTunes, that kind of stuff. And, you know, the also brand new to W2M Network, Blog Talk Radio. That's Which, right. by the way, if you search for Wrestling Unwrapped on Blog Talk Radio, in addition to finding our episode here and our Road Wild episode, you'll find episodes that we did before we came to the W2M Network as well. Be forewarned, commercials out the ass. I will withhold my argument. <laughs> One of us is professional. We'll leave it to you to decide which. <laughs> Indeed. However, Wrestling Unwrapped has come home to Blog Talk Radio. In addition, as Harry mentioned, Stitcher, Blueberry, iTunes, uh, and Spreaker, of course. You can find them anywhere, essentially. So for our executive producer, Sean Garmer, I'm executive producer. I'm kidding, Sean. I'm the sexy star, Harry Broadhurst. No, I kind of like you. (laughs) Ish. I'm the almost legitimate demon assassin, Patrick (laughs) Tetzoff. Thank you so much for listening as Woo Wrestling Unwrapped talks about the highway to hell, WWF SummerSlam 1998 here on the W2M Network. We will see you next time. The following podcast is a W2M Network original production. Visit W2Mnet.com for all of our other great podcasts, plus news, reviews, articles, and opinions from the worlds of wrestling, video games, football, and entertainment. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.